0: Welcome back to another edition of Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is podcast number 11. And today I wanted to talk about the idea of forgiveness and what does it mean to forgive and why do we struggle to forgive. I wanted to kind of address it from particularly a psychological perspective with kind of interspersing a little bit of of some religious perspective as well. Now, recently, my wife and I have been watching the series The Chosen, which is a really powerful series, and I cannot recommend it enough for those who are interested. I mean, I think it's one of those types of things where or shows that where when you look at it, you know, it definitely has a religious bent to it. Of course, it's about the life of Christ, but it's not just about the life of Christ. It's also about the life of the apostles. That followed christ and the people who didn't follow christ and one of the things that's really fascinating about it is you know the human lives that each of these individuals lives you know when we you know look at the gospels or you you know talk about it in church you know we tend to paint these individuals as very two-dimensional but the truth of it is they're human beings just like all the rest of us and one of the struggles that all of them have is with their definite desires psychologically, what I would say are ego-based, like we talked about last week, these ego dramas that they involve themselves in where they are desperate to find some measure of pleasure, desperate to find some measure of gratification, or desperate to protect and defend themselves from what it is that they fear or what it is that they're struggling with. But the fascinating piece is, you know, why do we, paint them as two-dimensional individuals why is it that they come across that way is it that they do come across that way or is it that we prefer to see them that way because when we think about it it is much easier for us to consider other people as rather two-dimensional and in a recent blog i talked about the notion of subjectivism in my struggle with trying to deal with come to grips with My own anger, angst, frustrations, disappointments, whatever words you might want to use with the way that society has become. And in that blog, I talked about the fact that we really need to recognize where and why these individuals or how and why these individuals have come to be this way. And one of the things I think that we struggle with is, you know, we have this particular subjective viewpoint ourselves. And we all would love to believe that the view we have of life and the view we have of others is what is. You know, Because I say it, because I think it, because I feel it, then it must be. And while there's no denying that there is quote-unquote reality to what it is, I think, and what I feel, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is what must be, that there is more to life than that. We just struggle with the idea of it. And it makes sense that we do, you know, by our natural inclinations, we are all fear driven human beings, not that we're born that way, as we've talked about. I mean, I believe ultimately that when our ego begins to develop in very, very young age, we are wide open, wide open reality and wide open to the concept and the idea that we are worthy of love, that we have value. I believe at the core of me that that value comes because we are made by God. But one way or another, we can look at this and we can say, you know, as children, we are of value. But something changes, and that something really is the reality of the world, a harsh, cold reality, that we're not going to find what it is we need, that we're not going to be loved as much as we long to be loved. and. What a sad state of affairs that is, because not only does it affect us throughout our development in earliest childhood and middle childhood and to adolescence and adulthood, but it affects us for the remainder of our lives. It affects how we relate to other people. And when I think about my own struggle with people being completely subjective, in other words, you know, this is what I say, this is what I feel, therefore this is what is, You know, I look at our society around us and I look at the cancel culture that we live in and I look at this world that says, you know, if I don't agree with your particular perspective, you're going to yell or scream or rage. You know, much like protesters tend to do and get angry at me because I don't see it the way you see it. And the rage and the anger and the frustration that you feel, I recognize by looking at it from a psychological perspective, is based on your own fear The fear that your reality is being challenged and therefore, you know, your status quo, the way your ego has learned to deal with life, is being pushed against and it produces anxiety and discomfort. And if it doesn't cease, it produces fear. We see it everywhere we look. You know, we see it in individuals who are fighting from the right or who are fighting from the left even fighting from the middle there is no place where human beings don't exist and therefore there is no place where human beings don't fear therefore there is no place where human beings don't feel frustration or anger or disappointment or trepidation about their lives so it doesn't matter whether you're on the right politically or on the left politically or in the center politically we're human beings and therefore we exist in a place of fear but the sad reality of it is we don't have to be there i'll get to that though. I think when I go back to the idea of my own struggle with the subjective perspective that the world has fallen into and the sense that I must accept everything that the world tells me or else I will be cancelled, I think what I've come to realize is that you know, these individuals don't start out this way. We become subjective when we realize that we have to protect ourselves. When the world we had leaned on and opened ourselves up to and believed would be there for us didn't turn out to be all that we thought it would be. We realize or we come to believe, let's put it that way, that we are the only ones that can take care of ourselves. And what a sad, sad moment that is for the human realization, we'll say, at that particular point. You know, that moment when we realize that we are alone and that we have to protect ourselves, that moment is one of fear and trepidation and deprivation. And it drives us, as we have talked about before, into a place of frustration and into a place of anger because we realize, you know, the world is not going to give me what it is I need. And so I slip into this subjective place where I'm going to find what it is I need for myself. And so when we think about the three places that a human being can exist in, a place of subsistence, or a place of existence, or a place of living. You know, we can see where fear is a common thread, as well as the idea of pleasure and connection is a common thread in all three of these places. But a place of subsistence is a very sad place to be. Sad in the sense that it really is, for want of a better way to put it, almost an artificial place. It's a place where we believe the pleasure we're getting is real. It's a place we believe that the tension we're reducing within us psychologically is something that is going to go away. And it's some place where we believe that we're connected to other people. But let's look at it honestly. In that space where we realize that we are on our own and we must take care of ourselves or we are subjective, in that space, all we can turn to are sources of artificial pleasure Pleasure that eases tension, though only for a moment. And even though it eases the tension, and it's on, even though it's only for a moment, it gives us the illusion that the other people who are easing that tension with us, the other people who are gathered at that bar with us, or are working out of the gym excessively, or who are sitting around the circle smoking pot from a bowl, all of these people are really connected to us, and they're not. They're not. There's no connection in that space. It is just a moment of a bunch of individuals ruminated, ruling, and ruled by their fear that are together in a space believing something that is an illusion at best, that everything is okay, that they are safe, they are free, and they are in control of their own life. And in truth, they're not. They live not in love, but they live in fear. And as we talked about, the opposite of love is not hate, it is fear. And so they don't love the people that they're with. They may quote unquote love that they're not alone. They may quote unquote love that they feel connected to these other people. they may even quote unquote love that the tension is reduced, but it's temporary at best. It is a place of addiction It is a place where we fall into where there is no, no love, no connection, only fear. And if we move into a place of existence, it's not much better. There, fantasy rules our lives, and we fantasize about who we are and how we fit and that everyone loves us and everyone values us and everyone is connected to us. But the truth of it is, by its very nature, with fantasy, eventually reality will strike someone will say something someone will do something someone will challenge us in a place of saying this is not real and therefore you know we will struggle with that and we will become angry and disconnected and fearful that these things are true that this person really is right that we are not gratified that we are not connected that we are not loved but then we have a place of living which is a place that we should all strive to be. You know, in a place of living, when we have tension in our lives, and we all do, in a place of living, though, we lean toward and on those people who value us, who really do love us. You know, it's not going to be perfect love. It's not going to be 100% because there is no heaven here on earth. But it is more than what it is that we could find in any other space it is more gratifying and more nurturing and more satisfying and in that space we feel this lesser need to protect ourselves and indeed as we've talked about it's not about the self preservation that comes with subjectivism it's about the preservation of oneself and the preservation of the other it's about preserving myself so I can be there for the other and them preserving themselves so they can be there for me it is what i refer to as healthy selfishness and indeed there is such a thing as healthy selfishness because when we think about the options that we have in life you know we want to think about the other but we also have to recognize that we must think about ourselves too it's like the c.s lewis metaphor of the ships and a convoy the second moral aspect or moral realm that we must consider is that we also have to work on making sure our ship is ship-shape, that we are able to sail, but not at the expense of others and not at the expense of recognizing that we are a part of a family, we are part of a unit. So let's go back for a moment to the idea that I was struggling with and talking about in my last blog. I think the idea is this, is that we have to recognize or we have the opportunity, it's a better way to put it, to recognize that this other person, this subjective individual who is crying out to be heard and crying out to be listened to and, being, and wants to say the things I think and the things I feel are real, they are what is true, and anyone who doesn't believe in them is troubled and is wrong and deserves to be punished or deserves to be canceled. When we look at these individuals, should we not but feel a measure of compassion for them? To be able to say, instead, I see that they do not live or do not, not they not are not in a place of living. They're not in a place where they feel connected to other people and they preserve themselves so that they can be there for others. They're in a place of either subsistence or a place of existence. You know, when you think about it, Each of us can probably claim to know at least one person in our life that we would classify, though not clinically, probably, but classify as a narcissist. But when you think about it, you know who would want to be a narcissist? A narcissist lives in fantasy. They live in this fantasy that everyone loves them, that they are the most important person in this space, maybe the most important person that they know or other people could possibly know. And all of it is a fantasy. Just based upon fear. A fear that they're not going to find what it is that their ego needs. And so their ego will develop this fantasy to make them better than they are. But the truth of it is that they live in fear. They live in doubt. And should we not, at some level or another, look at them, with mankind being our business and say, you know, I have compassion for this person because who would want to be in that space? In the same way, we can look at individuals who are so wrapped up in their self-preservation, so wrapped up in their subjectivism, that they believe that this is the course that they have to follow in life. And instead, should we not look at them and say, or at least say to ourselves, and act according to how it is we see them, as recognizing that these individuals are struggling struggling with their fear they're struggling to defend themselves because of that fear they're struggling because they did not get what it is they needed in life and so should we not in our own accord look at these individuals and be able to say you know out of the love of my heart out of a sense of agape for these individuals that i should recognize that they are a part of the body of christ that somewhere along the way life got a hold of them and twisted what was beautiful into something gnarly and sad and unhealthy and something that society would have us say is okay because we really, as members of society or as individuals within a society, we're told by society how to act. And society loves subjectivism. And the reason society does is because it what's It's what drives, you know, the sales. It's what drives the pursuit of things. Society would not exist in the way that it does if society operated according to the rules of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that capitalism is a bad thing. I think, instead, that it is better for us to look at it and ask ourselves, you know, with the money that I do have, With the things i do possess what am i doing what am i doing with it you know what am i doing to take care of my fellow man you know what am i doing like Ebenezer scrooge in a christmas carol what am i doing with my money if i'm just hoarding it or if i'm buying that brand new 75 inch television or that brand new you know tesla you know what am i doing with this What do I need these things for in my own life when I look at my neighbor and realize that my neighbor is struggling? Not just psychologically, but financially, perhaps. You know, what am I doing? Because we're not taking mankind into account. We're not thinking about the needs of other people. So what does this have to do with forgiveness? I think part of the idea of forgiveness is us being able to see individuals as three-dimensional as having a depth to them, having a history, you know, that people act in certain ways that may be hurtful to us. They may be harmful to us. They may cause us grief and sadness and despair. They may bring tears to our eyes and they may leave us thinking that nobody loves us or cares about us if they could possibly treat us this way. And yet, I think when we look at them, from a different angle and we look at them three-dimensionally. You know, we begin to recognize that there's more to what it is that's going on in this situation than meets the eye. No one acts in a vacuum. Everyone does what they do based upon a measure of their history. And we have this opportunity if we see them from a three-dimensional perspective to be able to look at them and say, you know, I see a fellow here You know, someone who is cut from the same cloth as me, who is a child of God as much as I am a child of God. You know, and I think when we are able to do so, we're able to stop long enough to be able to say to ourselves, you know, I, in seeing them this way, I have to face two things. One is that I myself am someone who deserves or needs, I should say, and I think deserves as well to be forgiven. I've done things that have hurt other people. I've done things that have caused them harm. I've done things that have broken hearts. Every one of us has. You know, and it's hard when we look at another person three-dimensionally because when we do, that means we have to turn the mirror on ourselves and look at ourselves three-dimensionally as well. You know, we need to see that we have fallen, that we have made mistakes. There's been one being in this world, who has not sinned and that is Christ every one of us is a three-dimensional human being full of sin full of mistakes full of desperate desires within our ego to try to get what it is we need and in these desperate moments these desperate desires we have hurt other people people that matter to us and people that we love sometimes desperately and passionately but even if we don't love them you know we need to think, as a second part of this, with the realization that other people are three-dimensional, is that we need to think about what it is that they've been through. You know, we are sinners, so are they. We need to be forgiven, so do they. You know, they may or may not accept our forgiveness. We may not even offer it to them out loud. But if we offer it to them, at least in the silence of our hearts and in our minds, Would we not then begin to see them differently? To treat them differently in our lives? You know, you think about the changes that could take place if mankind could just be kinder, more open, more understanding of the three-dimensional relationships that exist between all of us. You know, we are not these two-dimensional characters. We have depth. We have problems. We have struggles and each of us longs at some deeper level more than anything in the whole world to be loved we get in our own way we are our own worst enemies and so we have this chance in looking at another person and seeing the third dimension of that person we have this opportunity to not only see what it is that's going on inside of them but then to also let them see what's going on inside of us that's how we connect. That's what we want to do. That's how we become people of a place of living and not just fantasy or not just artificial pleasures. You know, I've, I've had so many patients throughout the years who have struggled with both artificial pleasures and fantasized pleasures, and they cling to them because they are so afraid. But every once in a while an individual gets to a place where they begin to recognize that there may be some more value to them than they imagined before. And that idea that they are seen by a therapist, or seen by a friend, or seen by a loved one, as three-dimensional, as someone who is deserving of forgiveness, who is deserving of love, who has value, that changes them. It begins to allow them to alter their lives and in turn alter how they relate to other people. So if I could leave you with this thought. The role of forgiveness in our lives is simple. Complex yet simple. idea of recognizing that other people need to be loved, that we need to be loved. To allow ourselves to get to a place where we can see that in others and that we can forgive them for who they are, the choices that they make, the things that they do in their lives. If we could just see them as the three-dimensional beings that they are, what a beautiful thing because now we see human beings in front of us instead of these flat and unlovable characters. Be well.